Good morning, everyone. I, I really wanted to uh, name this talk, You Don't Know Jack, but I didn't want to insult the audience. You may not know much more about this topic than I do. It's still not working. Uh, okay. Uh, these are relevant potential conflicts of interest. Uh, maybe it's working now. We'll see. Maybe it is AIM. So, no? Back, please. Okay. So, as an overview, we'll go over the mechanism of action. We'll talk about the efficacy and safety, practical use, and some novel JAK inhibitors. And really, the first three items are talking about tofacitinib, which so far is the only JAK kinase inhibitor that we have in the clinic, and really just for the last six months. So we'll go over some practical points about that. Next slide, please. So how do JAK inhibitors differ from the biologic agents that we've been hearing about? Well, first of all, they work intracellularly. They're not working outside the cell. They're not working in the serum or anywhere else. They're inside the cell. They're synthetic drugs. They're not proteins. And they're obviously small molecules, which means, uh, based on their absorption characteristics, they can be given orally and be effective. And because they're small molecules, they're not expected to be immunogenic. So you should not see loss of response because of antidrug antibodies. They also have very stable and very predictable pharmacokinetics. We see lots of variation from individual to individual, sometimes within the same individual with biologic agents. We don't expect that much variation uh, with the JAK kinase inhibitors. Next, please. So uh, the mechanism of Jack, Janus kinase inhibitors, and that's what JAK stands for, Janus kinase, facing inwardly and outwardly for the cell, just like the Roman god Janus. Um, and the biology is, is as follows, and you can click through all the items here uh, down to six or seven, so that I don't have to keep saying next. And stop there. Okay, so what happens is the cytokines bind on the surface of the cell to a specific receptor. Beneath the surface are the Janus kinases, and these are activated uh, by phosphorylation. And then the Janus kinases phosphorylate sites on the receptor and recruit the stats within the cell. The stats are then phosphorylated by the activated JAKs. Thank you. And uh, the stat dimers then translocate into the nucleus and they modulate gene expression. So in so doing, they increase levels of a variety of pro-inflammatory cytokines, and this drives a self-perpetuating chronic cycle of inflammation and immune cell activation. So what the JAK inhibitors do is they interfere with the binding of the JAK kinase inhibitors. They inhibit that enzyme and therefore inhibit everything downstream, and therefore they're going to interfere with this uh, amplification cycle within the cell and outside the cell that is pro-inflammatory. It's an interesting mix-and-match system. There are JAKs 1 through 3, as well as TIC2 in the family, and it's a mix-and-match scenario. Um, different cytokines have beneath the surface different combinations of, of the JAK family. So if you have an agent that blocks JAK1, for example, you may be inhibiting IL-2, interferon gamma, interleukin-6. If you inhibit JAK3, uh, you might inhibit uh, IL-2. You might inhibit other things. You know, basically, the specificity of the agent will predict how it, which cytokines will be inhibited downstream. 
So it's a complex system, and I'll start by saying that none of these chemical compounds are 100% specific for any one member of the family. They all have relative degrees of specificity for the individual components. So their profiles could differ in both efficacy and safety, and I think we'll see some of that. So let's talk a lot about tofacitinib because this is in our hands now. We are using this. We need to know all we can about how best to get the most out of this very interesting agent. Um, and we start with clinical remission in the Octave 1 and Octave 2 studies. These were two studies. They were exact replicas of each other. They included both TNF-experienced uh, and TNF-naive patients. Um, at the time that the study was being done, vetalizumab was not really on the market, and so patients were not included in the study who were veto-refractory, so we can't really talk about that. However, you see here by the definition of remission, which is total Mayo score of less than or equal to two, no subscore greater than one, rectal bleeding subscore of zero. Um, basically, this includes endoscopic zero or one as well, that you see tofacitinib is effective in both studies with about a uh, roughly a 10 to 13% effect size superior to placebo. Now, interestingly, you see higher rates of mucosal healing. In other words, the symptoms don't necessarily completely track perfectly well with healing of the mucosa, by which we mean a Mayo score of zero or one. Basically, no ulcers are seen here, no friability. And so here you can see that uh, tofacitinib is achieving rates of roughly 30% compared to only 11%, 15% with placebo at the induction phase. And that was at week eight. Now, if you re-randomize the responders at week eight uh, to get drug, either five milligrams twice a day or 10 milligrams twice a day, uh, or do placebo, you can see that over the course of the year, tofacitinib at either dose is effective and superior to maintenance with placebo. So that's the basis for maintenance dosing and induction dosing. So induction dosing is 10 milligrams BID, and maintenance dosing will either be 5 or 10 BID. How quickly does it work? Well, these data suggest that as early as two weeks, you can see an inductive effect. There's separation from placebo. But in fact, similar to the data that you saw before with uh, other agents like ustekinumab, if you really dig down deeply into uh, the diaries that patients keep in these studies, even by day three, you can see separation of tofacitinib uh, from placebo-treated patients in terms of rectal bleeding. So you could see response or the beginning of symptomatic relief as early as three days, even if not full response. What about the patients who do not achieve a clinical response by week eight? Well, in this study, those patients could get open-label long-term extension for another eight weeks. So if you took those patients, about half of those patients who were initial non-responders actually at week 16, meaning eight more weeks of treatment, um, they actually do achieve response. And so if you look at the combined inductive effect over eight weeks or 16 weeks, you see about three out of four patients responding ultimately, which is a really very good outcome. So I think the moral of this story is if the patient has not responded by eight weeks and there's no urgent reason to stop the, the treatment, try to give it another eight weeks and you might actually get additional patients to respond. What about the patients who have had prior TNF exposure? 
um, whether you're looking at Octave 1 or Octave 2, remember these are replicative studies, what you find is that the patients who had prior TNF exposure, while they have lower absolute rates of, of uh, response and remission, you actually see an identical effect size over superiority over placebo in the TNF experience as compared to the TNF naive patients. It's about 10% for remission. Um, so the moral of the story is that the drug works regardless of whether you failed TNF inhibitors or not, uh, but the absolute remission rates are going to be lower with the TNF experienced patients, just as you've heard with all the other agents. And this is what you can expect for, uh, this is clinical remission, so it's both symptoms and endoscopic remission at the end of one year in octave sustain, rates as high as 41% with 10 milligrams BID over a year. Now, after 8 or 16 weeks to get the patient into response, remember those patients are getting 10 milligrams twice a day for that time period. Some of the patients were randomized to get 5 milligrams twice a day, so they're sort of de-escalating their dosing. And then some of those patients clearly lost response. So one question is, is it possible to increase the dose back up to 10 milligrams twice a day? If you do that, do you recover some patients in their response? So this sort of scenario is replicated uh, through the course of these studies in patients who went into uh, extension. And what you can see is that you recover about two-thirds of patients um, over the course of a year, by two months, you get a, a, a close to 60% of patients. Mucosal healing in 60% of patients at one year, half of patients in remission at one year. So you don't get everyone back, but you get some. However, as you'll see in the safety data, there may be some good reasons to try to reduce the dose to 5 milligrams BID for maintenance rather than just keep everyone on 10 BID forever. Um, what about the safety? So uh, the safety looks very good. This is octave sustained. This is over one year, looking at a comparison to placebo, 5 milligrams twice a day and 10 milligrams twice a day. Um, you do see increased rates of nasopharyngitis, as you do with many agents. Um, but otherwise, what you will notice at the bottom is that there is an increased rate of herpes zoster um, by these data as high as 5% of patients. Um, compared to the lower rate of 1.5% with the 5 milligram BID maintenance dose. If we look specifically at infections and try to get real point estimates for what this looks like for these patients, first of all, um, death was an extraordinarily rare event. There was one patient in this whole very large uh, uh, series of studies. Serious infections were really rare events. For the most part, what you see is herpes zoster, and mostly these are non-serious herpes zoster, meaning not multidermatomal or disseminated zoster. In fact, I don't think there were cases of disseminated zoster at all. And uh, you see extremely rare opportunistic infections uh, outside of herpes zoster itself. Um, if we compare the rates of herpes zoster under treatment with tofacitinib, at least in RA data, which, mind you, is a lower dose of 5 milligrams, um, you can see that the anti-TNFs have uh, lower rates, uh, adjusted hazard ratios, um, of herpes zoster than tofacitinib does. You can see a hazard rate of 1.4 compared to something approximating 1 with the anti-TNF. So this clearly is a risk, and as I showed you, it's a higher risk with the higher dose. 
So there are also regional differences in rates of herpes zoster in the large clinical trial program. You see the highest rates in Asian patients, um, so be mindful of that as well. Um, there's a higher risk uh, in these patients. And according to the 2017 ACG guidelines, there's a recommendation for patients over the age of 50 certainly should consider vaccination against herpes zoster and also certain subgroups of immunosuppressed patients. And I would suggest that all your patients who you're considering putting on this agent, uh, maybe this class, should be immunized preferably with the recombinant non-live herpes zoster vaccine. And that is the CDC's recommendation generally as well. Turning to another uh, kind of event, uh, we can look at major adverse cardiovascular events. Now, these do not seem to be increased over placebo, um, despite the fact that one reliably sees in most patients an increase in total cholesterol. This is LDL and HDL in proportion to each other. So it's unclear whether this actually increases the cardiovascular risk. However, it is recommended that after you initiate therapy at either week or four or week eight that you check uh, lipids and if the patient falls within parameters for treatment for hypercholesterolemia that you you do so that you treat them according to existing guidelines wherever you may be practicing now we mentioned gi perforation at the bottom because one of the cytokines that's blocked here is interleukin-6 and there have been studies of il-6 inhibitors that actually seem to show an increased risk of gi perforation but in fact, that does not seem to be an increased risk with tofacitinib in this population in ulcerative colitis. There is a risk of non-melanoma skin cancers, however, and that you need to be mindful for. So if one considers practical aspects, you need to monitor a few things here. It would be good to check a CBC at baseline and at weeks uh, four and eight, and then probably every three months or so, I uh, would get a CBC with differential because you want to look at lymphocyte counts and uh, neutrophils as well as platelets. Um, but I would say that in the studies, events that were um, serious enough to warrant discontinuation of the drug or decreasing dose were extremely rare, but it is something to watch for. Lipids we talked about. I would check these at weeks four or eight, or both if you prefer. By then, the lipid levels will have stabilized. So you don't need to keep checking lipids, but you should do it at least once after initiation of therapy. And liver enzymes we mentioned because there have been rare cases of uh, elevation, but no cases that I'm aware of of meeting Highs Law or liver failure, but it is recommended that you monitor this nonetheless. There are a few things you need to know about the pharmacokinetics and uh, just some basic things. Um, basically, you should uh, avoid having your patient taking strong CYP3A4 inhibitors, such as ketoconazole or moderate inhibitors, along with a strong inhibitor, such as fluconazole. You need to do some dose adjustment there. Also, if the patient is in moderate to severe renal uh, failure or renal impairment or moderate hepatic impairment, you also need uh, dose reduction or avoidance. And the final thing is that grapefruit juice is a potent CYP3A4 inhibitor, so your patient should not be guzzling their tofacitinib with a glass of grapefruit juice. 
they probably should be avoiding it altogether. Um, you'll be watching for ANC counts that are uh, lower than these margins here and dose adjust according to that. Because as, as I said, these are very rare events along with absolute lymphocyte counts and anemia. Now, of course, we have many patients with anemia who have ulcerative colitis. Less than eight um, is often seen, so I, I would be just watchful of that and use your clinical opinion. Your judgment counts. What about pregnancy? Um, we have just very little data in ulcerative colitis patients and a mixture of other indications for which the drug has been studied or approved. Um, so at this point, it's generally recommended that you have the patient off of tofacitinib for three months or more before intending to, to become pregnant. For at least the handful of pregnancies that did occur while on drug, there did not seem to be any real increase in birth defects or other issues, um, but I wouldn't intentionally do this at this point. So the summary of adverse events are that herpes zoster is increased, especially in the higher-dose maintenance arm, uh, twice the rate of TNFs or one-and-a-half the rate, similar to thiopurines in my mind. Uh, Non-melanoma skin cancer, again, similar to thiopurines. GI perforation, not a risk. We talked about cholesterol. There is no immunogenicity with small molecules. I don't expect you to be doing therapeutic drug monitoring for this agent. Also, one thing I didn't mention, you can see bumps in creatinine kinase, but um, not rhabdomyolysis, and so there's likely no clinical impact, and as I said, little data in pregnancy. What about the half-life of this drug? In contrast to the biologic agents, which have 14 days to more than three weeks, um, you have to clear these things over six to eight weeks. Tofacitinib has, uh, is gone in about six hours after you stop it, longer if the patient has impaired renal function. However, that's just the drug level. It is thought that the biologic effect is more durable than that and may be more like two or three weeks before the effect is fully cleared. So uh, this is the take-home slide, the practical use of tofacitinib in UC. Camera's out. Dosing, uh, the induction dose is 10 milligrams BID for eight weeks. For eight-week non-responders, I would consider eight more weeks if they can. And if there is a, week, a response at week 16, maintain them. As far as maintenance dosing, once you get them to respond, for the TNF-naive responders, I'd consider maintaining uh, maintaining with the lower dose, 5 milligrams BID. But for the more difficult-to-treat uh, uh, TNF-inadequate uh, uh, responders, I'd consider ma maintaining with 10 milligrams BID for at least, at least six months. There is some data emerging that that may be the right amount of time or till mucosal healing has been achieved. We're not sure, really. Uh, dose adjustments are needed for liver or renal impairment and for the SIP inhibitors. Time to response, you can tell the patient you might start feeling better as little as three days, but you might take as long as 16 weeks to fully respond. And safety, the message is dose-dependent herpes zoster risk. Consider recombinant shingles vaccine. Check a lipid profile. Uh, check a CBC and DFID baseline and periodically. Skin exams every year and liver enzymes every three months or so. Now, the position of, of, these, uh, of this agent within UC um, is not completely abundantly clear yet, and so we rely on a number of distinct factors. We don't have much data at all in acute severe ulcerative colitis. In fact, there's just one case series just published days ago of four patients at the University of Michigan that seem to have promising results at 30 milligrams a day. I do not recommend you try this until there's much more data. Um, for severe extra intestinal manifestations, this is 
still very good, but I would say tofacitinib could also be excellent. Um, in Crohn's disease, it's not indicated for Crohn's disease, so there's no question. Pregnancy, lots of experience with the TNF blockers. Um, we're not talking about postoperative prophylaxis of the pouch just yet. Um, I'd consider vedolizumab strongly for first-line therapy. It has excellent safety, best in patients with no prior TNF exposure. More important in Crohn's disease than in ulcerative colitis, in my view. Patients who have a history of opportunistic infections or malignancy or elderly, these are all good reasons to use vedolizumab. But after failure of conventional therapies with failure with prior anti-TNFs, patients who prefer oral dosing. Um, but I want to pause and say that if you look at the label for tofacitinib, it is for the treatment of ulcerative colitis. It doesn't require to have failed anything, not even a steroid. Um, patients with poor pharmacokinetics for biologics, this is an oral agent, not subject to those issues, known contraindications to anti-TNF. And for patients who are prone to dose interruption and therefore developing anti-drug antibodies, an oral agent like this is great. In the last minute, we'll talk about future JAK inhibitors, just a little bit of data. They're not all the same, as I said. Tofacitinib is relatively specific for JAK1 and JAK3. Baricitinib is not being studied in IBD. Filgotinib and upadacitinib, which are JAK1 inhibitors. And pefacitinib, I'll show you, is a JAK3 inhibitor that um, really... Um, unfortunately failed in this phase to be studied because the outcome that was chosen was a strange um, kind of dose-ranging outcome with change from baseline and Mayo score. But in fact, if you looked at more conventional outcomes like clinical remission and mucosal healing, it actually looked like blocking JAK3 alone with pefacitinib might be useful. Um, however, I'm not aware that this drug is moving on in development. Now, uh, Tofacitinib failed in two phase uh, two studies in Crohn's disease. By contrast, we have this agent, filgotinib, and upadacitinib, which are JAK1 inhibitors, very specific for that. And you can see that with filgotinib, that the study achieved clinical remission, clinical response, and um, also worked uh, reasonably well in the TNF-exposed and TNF-naive patients both. And by the way, also achieved some outcomes endoscopically and appeared to be safe um, in the induction phase. There was just one case of herpes zoster. Makes you wonder what longer treatment will do. And for upadacitinib, another JAK1 kinase specific inhibitor, um, likewise, you could see clinical remission and a very nice effect for endoscopic remission. The doses that were higher than 12 milligrams BID um, that were given twice a day seemed to be highly effective for uh, clinical remission and also for endoscopic remission. So in conclusion, the JAK inhibitors are a new class of oral small molecule agents for IBD. Tofacitinib is what we have now, but filgotinib and upadacitinib are coming along for Crohn's and are also being studied for ulcerative colitis. If you see, we can see tofacitinib has rapid onset of effect. It has stable and predictable pharmacokinetics, no immunogenicity, effective after failure of TNF blockers, but can be used anytime before then. It has a manageable safety profile with the caveats that I mentioned. Be aware of some dose adjustments for renal or hepatic impairment and for some drug interactions. So I hope you found that really useful for your practice, and thanks so much for listening.